If you have your Bibles, if you'll take them and open with me to Job chapter 32. Job chapter 32. Uh, we've been working our way through the book of Job. Uh, over, uh, We've mapped it out in seven messages. So this is uh, for, for the book having uh, 40 plus chapters, a bit of a high altitude approach to go through it in seven messages. So we're often finding ourselves in sermons where we're looking at multiple chapters at a time. And we're going to do that again this morning. Chapters 32 through 37 will be the sermon text. Chapter 32 of Job is on page 438 of the Red Bible. And for the reading of God's Word prior to the sermon, of course, I'm not going to read all six chapters, but what I do want to read for us are just the first 10 verses of chapter 32 to introduce us to this new character who's now going to surface in the book of Job, a man named Elihu. And so if you're able, once more, I want to invite you to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Job chapter 32, let's hear verses 1 through 10. So these three men ceased to answer Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Would you remain standing as we pray? <clears throat> Father, we know that though we have these moments in our service where we pause to pray, it's not because we're merely speaking aloud to nothing or we need something to do. It's because we believe your word that you exist and that you reward those who seek you, that you hear us because your son, Jesus Christ, intercedes for us. And so we pray right now for our brother Bill. We pray that you would heal him, that you would allow him to recover, that you would bring him back to full strength so that he might labor alongside of us and serve us so faithfully as he has been doing. Father, we acknowledge we are frail and you are mighty. So would you please show your strength and your love? And Father, would you show your strength and your love to us as well as we now hear your word? Help me in my frailty to preach your word in such a way that it can be understood and empower me so that what we see is not the demonstration of the wisdom of man, but a demonstration of the Spirit of God working in power through the preaching of your word. And give us hearts to understand and love and obey and be transformed by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Amongst all that we've seen in the first 31 chapters of the book of Job and all the difficult details that we've worked through, it's actually our text this morning that is the most controversial. The controversy really revolves around this character who comes into the story of Job in chapter 32, a man named Elihu. And the controversy surrounding him is simply revolving around this question. Is he good or is he bad? Is he another one of Job's terrible friends giving terrible counsel? Or is he a helpful voice? who can point Job in the right direction and even prepare the way for the arrival of God who's going to come in chapter 38 and address Job. Interestingly, if you read commentaries, and then what I read this week in studying through this text, 
literally half of the books that I read said, he's a young, brash, arrogant fool. And the other half said, he's really helpful and paves the way for the arrival of God. There doesn't seem to be much middle ground on Elihu. So let me tell you why some people think he's just a young, brash fool. And then I'm going to tell you and give you a number of reasons why I think he's actually a voice of wisdom and help to us. And that's the position where I stand. So first, why is it that, that some think he's a young, brash, arrogant fool? One, because he is young. Uh, the text makes it very clear to us. Uh, even, in fact, when, when in Elihu speaks in, in verse 6 of chapter 32, he says, I am young in ear, years and you are aged. So here comes an individual, Elihu, who is young. And then when he actually starts speaking, he doesn't dive into saying what he wants to say. He spends a very long time justifying himself. All of chapter 32 and even some of chapter 33 is spent with Elihu telling them, here's why you need to listen to what I have to say. So some think, why would he have something worthy to say if he feels the need to justify himself to such a degree? Another reason some dismiss him as this young, arrogant fool is because he's also angry. You heard that read in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 32, or in the second half of verse 2, it says, he burned with anger at Job, and in verse 3, he burned with anger at Job's three friends. And then the very end of verse 5, he burned with anger. He's burning and he's angry. The fourth reason, at times, he sounds like Job's other three friends. So chapter 36, for example, listen to verses 6 and 7. Here Elihu says of the Lord, He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. Or verse 7, He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne he sets them forever and they are exalted. It can sound a bit there like he's like the three friends, right? If you're good, God is doing good things for you and to you. And if you're bad, God is doing bad things against you, toward you. And so again, some have said, in fact, one commentator, I wrote this down, calls Elihu the ultimate young fool. But I don't think he is. I actually think Elihu is a helpful voice who comes along right before the arrival of God in this book, both to convict Job and to pave the way for the voice of God. Now, if I think that, why? I'm going to give you some reasons. In fact, I'm going to give you six reasons. And these, none of these are sermon points. <laughs> I say that because otherwise you're going to walk out saying, I heard an eight-point sermon today, which you're not. <laughs> you're going to hear a two-point sermon and these don't count. <laughs> Six reasons why I think Elihu is a helpful voice for us. I'll go through them somewhat quickly, but if you want to write them down, I'll have them on the screen. Number one, Elihu is given more of an introduction than Job's three friends. Elihu is given more of an introduction than Job's three friends. Now, you remember the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they spoke in chapter 4 all the way through chapter 27 with Job and the three friends dialoguing in these three rounds of dialogue. Well, for example, when Eliphaz, the leader of the three friends, the one that when God shows up, he addresses him as a representative of the others, about Eliphaz, here's his introduction. Then Eliphaz, the team, and I answered and said, that's it. All we're told about Eliphaz is he's a Temanite. No more. But look at the way that Elihu is introduced in our text. Look at chapter 32, verse 2. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. Do you see how there's just more details in his introduction? As if the narrator is saying, here is someone who has an important standing someone who needs to be paid attention to. So that's reason number one. Perhaps a subtle reason, but I think there it is. Number two, the book of Job gives Elihu more space than any of the three friends. The book of Job gives Elihu more space than any of the three friends. Now, 
If you remember in the earlier parts of the book of Job, in chapter 4 through chapter 27, when they had this debate, uh, Job's three friends would speak, and then Job would respond. And, and then the second friend spoke, and Job responded. A third friend spoke, and Job responded. But as you went along, they seemed to kind of peter out. They speak less and less. So that in the third round of dialogues, the last friend, Zophar, doesn't even speak at all. And each time they speak, Job answers. Job interrupts them. It's not as if they go on the whole time. But now, when you get to chapter 32 and you hear Elihu, Elihu speaks in an uninterrupted fashion for six full chapters. I mean, this is a lot of speaking. So, so the book of Job is giving Elihu more voice than any of the three friends that speak in the earlier part of the book. Reason number three. Elihu doesn't simply repeat what Job's three friends say. Elihu doesn't simply repeat what Job's three friends say. Now, this is a reason that a lot of the commentators dismiss Elihu as just being another foolish young man. In other words, he's coming along, he's saying the exact same thing Job's three foolish friends have said, only he can add to it his youthful arrogance. But that's actually not the case. If you read what Elihu says, it's very clear that he's not simply repeating the same thing that the three friends have said. In fact, Elihu sees himself as saying something different than his three friends. Look at chapter 32, verse 3. The text says of Elihu, he burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. In other words, if Elihu is coming along simply because he also wants to say the very same things that the three friends have said, then why is he angry at what the three friends have said? The reason he's angry is because he disagrees with them. Or look at verse 14 of chapter 32. Elihu says about Job, He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. So, if you want to say that Elihu is simply saying the same thing that the three friends have said, that would be news to Elihu. He doesn't think he's doing it. He says, I'm not going to answer Job with the same thing the three guys have said. I'm going to give him something different. Reason number four. Job doesn't respond to Elihu. Job doesn't respond to Elihu. Now, if you've read the rest of the book of Job, this would be very surprising if, Job's, if Elihu is simply saying the same thing that Job's three friends have said. Because every time Job's three friends talk, Job answers, and he takes a long time doing it. In fact, when you get to round number three, they are speaking less and less. As I mentioned, Eliphaz speaks less than he ever has. In round three, Bildad speaks less than he ever has. Zophar doesn't speak at all. So you would think Job then would see no need to speak a great deal. But oh no. That's not Job. He talks and he talks and he talks. Why? Because he is passionate about debating this point and answering their charge to say to them, listen, I'm not suffering because I've done some grievous sin. He is so passionate to answer every one of their charges, he even dreams that there would be a monument someday after his death that would testify to his righteousness. So can you imagine then? Job sitting there while this young buck comes along and over six chapters, if he's simply saying the same thing that he gets done and Job just sits there silent, that's not Job. Job's going to answer. The reason I think Job doesn't respond to Elihu is because Job thinks that Elihu is making a good point. I think, in fact, Job is convicted of his sin. I'll address that more in a second. Reason number five, to look at Elihu as a good voice. God doesn't rebuke Elihu. Now again, if you'll turn to chapter 42, just briefly, note when God shows up on the scene, as God's wrapping this whole thing up, his speech, in chapter 42, verse 7, God tells Job's three friends, his anger burns against them. Verse 7 of chapter 42. 
After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you. Interestingly, the same kind of language used of Elihu toward them, right? My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, this is the question. If Elihu is no more than one more bad voice counseling Job, and a youthful, arrogant voice at that, then when God shows up and begins to rebuke all those who have spoken wrongly, why doesn't he rebuke Elihu? Especially when Elihu says so much. Instead, he says to Eliphaz, my anger burns against you and your two friends. He doesn't rebuke Elihu. Again, I think because Elihu, what he's saying here is right. And then finally, number six, there is a tight connection between where Elihu ends and God begins. Here's what I mean by that. When you get to chapter 37, when you get to chapter 37, chapter 37 represents Elihu's last words, the last thing he says in his speech to Job. And you'll note there are two themes in chapter 37. This is where Elihu ends. On the one hand, there's this theme that God makes himself known in the storm. So look at chapter 37, verse 2. Elihu says, keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Uh, under the whole of heaven, he, under the whole heaven, he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. Or skip down to verse 9 of chapter 37. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. So when, when Elihu, the first theme that he's going to end his speech with, his first theme is that God speaks coming to us in the storm. His voice is like thunder and lightning, like a whirlwind and ice. The last half of Elihu's speech is a questioning of Job that shows both Job's ignorance and his inability. In other words, he asks some questions like, Job, do you know how God did this? Or, or Job, can you do what God does? He says, for example, in verse 14 of chapter 37, Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Verse 15, do you know how God lays his command on them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Or verse 16, do you know the balancings of the clouds? Or verse 18, can you, like him, spread out the skies? So there are these two themes then that Elihu ends on, the theme of God speaks in the storm and the theme of showing, questioning Job so that Job sees his inability and his ignorance. Note then how God shows up in chapter 38. Chapter 38, verse 1, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, just as Elihu says, God speaks in the storm. Here comes God to speak out of the whirlwind. And then when God speaks, questioning Job, look at what he says. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Or verse 8, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? And on and on God goes like this, questioning Job in such a way that it exposes Job's ignorance and his inability. So do you see how Elihu ends at the very point that God begins with his speaking? So therefore, I think Elihu functions this way. I think Elihu functions in the book of Job as a right and helpful a convicting voice to Job to prepare Job to hear the voice of God. In some ways, like John the Baptist speaks a message not contrary to Jesus, but in line with Jesus so that he might prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. 
I think this is how Elihu functions in this text. I think the reason Job doesn't answer him when he finishes is because Job is convicted of his sin. Now, let me address that one second, and then I'll get through with my introduction and go to my two sermon points. Are we confident we can say that Job's convicted of his sin by the time Elihu gets through speaking? Because, if you remember, God has spoken of Job as righteous. I mean, it's the voice of God in chapters 1 and 2 that make very clear, even to the devil, Job is a righteous follower of God. So how can we say that by the time Elihu finishes speaking and then God comes along after him, that Job's sin has been exposed? Two reasons. Number one, because Job repents. Chapter 42, verse 6 Chapter 42 begins saying, then Job answered the Lord and said, and by the time you get down to verse 6, Job's conclusion, 42.6, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job himself says at the end of the book, he repents. So there's some sin in Job's life here that he needs to deal with, and he does. The other reason why it's okay for us to say that through Elihu's speech, and then God's speech after this as well, obviously, Job's sin is exposed so that he needs to repent. The reason we can say that is because we need to have a category for the righteous believer having sin. Now, I know this is hard for us. It can be a little tricky, and we've said it before, right, that, that Job, when the text says he's righteous, it doesn't mean he's sinless. But sometimes when we hear Job's declaration of righteousness and God's declaration of righteousness about Job, it can lead us to think that surely then nothing Job says is wrong or nothing Job does is wrong. But to be righteous doesn't mean that one is sinless. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, it casts all of humanity in two camps. Think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who... Walks in the way of the Lord, right? Who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Who does all these things. He's like a tree planted by living waters. As opposed to that, then Psalm 1 lays out the path of the wicked. And then by the time you get to the last verse in Psalm 1, then, it lays out two paths for us. The way of the righteous, which is known by God, and the way of the wicked. So humanity is divided into two camps. The righteous and the wicked. Which camp was King David in? The righteous. Was David sinless? Psalm 51, right? We looked at that not too long ago. Absolutely, David was not sinless. So we need to have this category of the righteous who has sinned. The righteous who has to deal with his sin. And that's what we have in the book of Job. In all that's gone on, one of the things that's been revealed in Job's speaking is that there's some sin that needs to be dealt with, and this is why Elihu comes, to help prepare Job to address this issue and think rightly so that he might be ready for the voice of God. It comes in chapter 38. Well, then if Elihu is here then to correct Job, what does he say to Job? Well, there are two points, and these are the two points of the sermon today. Number one, Job was wrong to say that God is unjust. Job was wrong to say that God was unjust. You'll remember when Job debated with his friends, Job's friends were constantly saying, Job must have done something, something grievously sinful. And the reason why is because they, they operated under this simplistic principle of retribution that said this, if good things happen to you, it's because you've been good. If really good things happen to you, it's because you've been really good. But by contrast, if bad things happen to you, then you've been bad. And if really, really bad things happen to you, you must have done something really, really bad. Now, when you look at Job's life, it's hard not to categorize the suffering that he's facing as really, really, really bad. 
What then can you conclude about Job? Well, his friends are concluding Job must have done something really, really, really bad. He, he looks good to us on the outside, sure, but what we don't know is that he must be hiding all kinds of terrible wickedness. Now, Job knows better. In fact, Job knows that God knows better. Job has been pursuing the Lord. He's been attempting to obey the Lord. Yes, not perfectly, not sinlessly, but his heart is toward the Lord and his heart is obedient. And, and therefore, Job wants to dispute that, but as he justifies himself, as he tells his friends... I have not sinned in these grievous ways. That's not why this is happening. What Job then begins to do is rather, instead, as he justifies himself, he charges God with acting unjustly. God, Job says of God, God is treating me as if I'm a terrible sinner, but he knows better. And this is what Elihu rebukes Job for. Look at chapter 32, verse 2. The second half of verse 2, after the introduction of Elihu, it says, He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He justified himself rather than God. Job knew that what the three friends were saying about him was wrong. And Job ferociously defends his own honor. I have not done these things. But interestingly, when Job begins to ferociously defend his own honor, he does not care to ferociously defend the honor of God. He's in fact, in his mind, it seems that he's thinking, if necessary, I will speak ill of God, if that's what it takes to justify myself. And so Job justifies himself, but he does not honor the Lord. And, and some of the things that he says, he charges God with unjust, that, that he acts unjustly. So, so in chapter 33, verse 9, Elihu brings this out to him again. Chapter 33, verses 9 through 12. You say, this is Elihu speaking to Job, you say, I'm pure without transgression, I'm clean and there's no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stalk and watches all my paths. In other words, you're saying you're righteous, but God is treating you as if you're his enemy. And Elihu concludes in verse 12, Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. And then in chapter 34, verses 5 and 6, Elihu notes that what Job has done by declaring God unjust is he has slandered God. Chapter 34, verse 5, Job has said, I am in the right and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar and my wound is incurable, though I am, transgression, though I am without transgression. You see what Job says, I have spoken truthfully and God is declaring I'm a liar. Well, if that's accurately what's going on, if that's a true representation of what's going on, if Job really has not lied and God is saying that he has lied, then God is acting unjustly. But Elihu's point is, Job, how dare you charge God with unjustice? How dare you say that God is something less than righteous? In fact, Elihu seems to point this out on three different levels, how Job has done this wrongly. On the first level, he's wrong just to think that God could act unjustly. Look at chapter 34, verse 10. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. Or verse 12 of chapter 34. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Job, you've said that God has perverted justice, but God cannot pervert justice. He is the Almighty God. Job has also done this wrong on the level of, of really his understanding of what righteousness is. What he's missed is that God is himself, by definition, righteous. So notice what Elihu says in chapter 34, verse 17. Shall one who hates justice govern, that is, Elihu's recognizing God's the one over the creation. Do you really think the creator could be unjust? He continues, verse 17. Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? 
Now, one of the absurdities of Job saying that God is acting less than righteously, that God is less than righteous, is because God is the standard of righteousness. You see, when we talk about God acting justly, what we don't mean is that there's some kind of external standard of righteousness that God is always making sure he measures up to. That God is saying, I want to make sure I act righteously. Let me look at what the standard is and I'll measure up to it. That's not how it works. Rather, everything God does is righteous because the standard of righteousness is God's holy character. This is why, for example, if you've ever thought of this, as a quick side note, if you've ever thought to yourself, could God make another world and in that world say murder is good, honoring your parents is bad, sexual, morality is, sexual immorality is praiseworthy? No. And the reason he couldn't do that is because when he says murder is bad or sexual immorality is wicked, it's not that God is arbitrarily assigning to these things that's good and that's bad, that's moral, that's immoral. Something is good or bad in our world, it's good either because it accords with the righteous character of God, or it is bad because it does not accord with the righteous character of God. And therefore, God is himself the standard of righteousness. And so, Elihu's pointing out, how dare you think that the Almighty could be unjust? And a final reason, a final level, a final point at which Job has done this wrongly is in his audacity to think that a human could actually stand in judgment over God. In chapter 33, verse 6, Elihu says to Job, Behold, I am toward God as you are. We're the same. And who are we, Job? I, too, was pinched off from a piece of clay. In other words, the point Elihu is making to Job is you and I are the same because all humans are the same. We're simply clay. We were made out of the dust of the earth. By contrast, when you read chapter 37 and Elihu speaks of the majesty and the greatness of God, the one who stretches out the skies and makes it thunder, the one who uh, balances the clouds and lays his commands upon the lightning itself so that it obeys what God says. What Elihu is saying is that you and I aren't even comparable to God. We are just pieces of clay when he is the one who reigns over the whole universe. Therefore... Elihu's implication is, how dare you, Job, think that you can stand in judgment over God, saying what God has done is wrong. C.S. Lewis famously said, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He, thinking a modern man, he's quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Now, my one dispute with Lewis here is when he says that ancient men obviously approached God well as opposed to modern man. I want to say to Lewis, read the book of Job. Job is one of the earliest narratives in the whole Bible, and Job surely messes this up. But where I want to vehemently agree with Lewis is in the absurdity of thinking that a man can dare see himself in standing in a place of judgment over God. As if man is in the bench and God is down there in the dock, having to give us reasons, how dare us think that God must justify to us why he has done this or why he has done that. We are simply man and he is God. Who do we think we are? And this is important for us to remember because earlier in the book, 
we talk about the appropriateness of lament. And you can read the lament psalms, and the psalmist will say things like, why, O Lord, do you stand far off, and how long will you allow this to happen? And that is good and right and appropriate to lament and wrestle as you, with the Lord as you declare these things. I don't understand why you're acting this way, or I don't understand why you don't act more quickly. Those things are good and right to unveil your heart and your hurt and to wrestle with and before the Lord. But something that is never okay is to think that we are in a position to stand in judgment over God. We are not wiser than He, and we best approach Him always acknowledging that. He is God, and we are not. So the first thing, then, that Elihu rebukes in Job, the thing that he corrects is Job was wrong to say that God is unjust. But there's a second thing. Job was wrong to think that God had been silent. Job was wrong to think that God had been silent. In chapter 33... Verse 13, Elihu says to Job, Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? Chapter 33, verse 13. And Elihu's right. That's exactly what Job's been doing this whole time. Job's been railing against God, declaring that God owes him an answer. He owes him some kind of justification. And the entire time, Job has been saying, And yet, God, you are silent. You're not speaking. In fact, at the end of chapter 31, Job has, has said, God, I've signed my name now. I'm demanding that you speak because you've been silent. And Elihu says, Job, why do you say that? Why do you say that God's silent? He's not silent. Chapter 33, verse 14, Elihu says, for God speaks in one way and in two though man does not perceive it. When, when Elihu says God speaks in one way and in two, what he means is there are many ways that God speaks. The problem isn't that God's silent. He says the problem is God speaks in one way and in two. The problem is that man does not perceive it. We miss how God's speaking. Now, of course, the book of Job the events in the book of Job take place before the writing of the Bible, and so it's not as if Elihu could have said, just go pick up your Bible, Job, and read it. The Bible didn't exist at this point. But Elihu notes that there are many ways that God speaks. One of them, he points out, is that God speaks to us in a dream. Note what he says in verse 15 of chapter 33. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. And you're going, wait, wait, what's he, what's he talking about? A dream and man's terrified and, and through all this being terrified in a dream, he's, he's kept back from endangering his soul? Well, what's that mean? Well, I think it's something that you can relate to, actually. Think, think for example, of this. Imagine a man who's maybe not been walking in a loving attitude toward his wife. He's been short with her, he's been unloving toward her, been a bit callous toward her, and then one night he goes to sleep, and in the midst of his sleep he has a dream, and in his dream his wife dies. He loses her, and it terrifies him. His heart's racing. One of those kinds of dreams that, that when you wake up from, you have to look across the bed just to make sure she's really there. It's not real. You've had those dreams, haven't you? And you know, you can imagine that that man waking up, looking over at his wife, having felt what felt so real that he had lost her. And all of a sudden, it terrifies him and jars him into thinking, I need to stop taking her for granted. I need to love her, care for her, and nourish and cherish her. Elihu says that's one of the ways that God can speak, that He can arrest our souls and bring us back from danger is by terrifying us in a dream when, when all our defenses are down and when we can't be that busy. God speaks in a dream. But he mentions a second way that God speaks. God speaks in our pain. He speaks in our suffering. Chapter 33, verse 19. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed, and with continual strife in his bones. Or skip down to verse 29 and 30 of chapter 33. 
Behold, God, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Elihu says another way that God speaks is he speaks through our pain, through our suffering. We go through times of suffering and God brings the suffering, he allows the suffering in our life so that we might be brought back from the pit, we might be saved. Now, now, now here, specifically, is where we might say, hold on a second, Elihu, you're starting to sound a lot like Job's friends. If you're saying that Job's pain is upon him to reveal sin, then, then are you saying you sound just like Job's friends? Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Are you saying that if Job's pain is revealing sin, then it must be that, that Job had some kind of grievous sin in his life, and that's why the suffering has happened? Because again, if bad things happen, he must be a bad person, or if good things happen, he must be a good person. Well, no. This is not a lie who's saying the same thing that Job's friends have said. And let me show this to you by looking at chapter 36. Let me show you that Elihu's theology is just a little different from his friends. In chapter 36, verse 7, Elihu is going to start communicating in chapter 36, verse 7, about how God deals with the righteous. Now, that's important for us. He's going to make this clear. He's talking about how he deals with the righteous. Chapter 36, verse 7. He, that is God, God does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. But with kings on the throne, he sets them, who is them? The righteous, forever, and they are exalted. Who are they? The righteous. Now look at verse 8. And if they, who is they? The righteous. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction. Now, already you can see that Elihu doesn't think exactly like Job's friends because he has a category for righteous people being caught in chains. He has a category for righteous people being caught in the cords of affliction and their suffering. But he sees something that God does in those circumstances. If they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, verse 8, then look at verse 9, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly, he opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. In other words, what Elihu is saying here is that one of the reasons that God allows righteous people to be bound, to use his language, uh, to be bound in chains or to be caught in the cords of affliction, to go through times of suffering it's because God uses that suffering to open their ears to His instruction so that He may address sinful tendencies in their lives. Now, with the wicked, it doesn't work this way. Chapter 36, verse 13. 36, 13, the godless in their heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when He binds them. So He's using the same kind of language. When the righteous are bound in chains, God opens their ears. But when the godless are bound in chains, when they go through affliction, what happens? Verse 13 says, they only cherish their anger. So you take a wicked man, you bring affliction into his life, and you know what happens? His wickedness and his anger intensifies. But, by contrast, with the righteous person, they're bound in chains, they're called in the cords of affliction, and God opens their ears to instruction. Or verse 15 he delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Now, we have a category for this. If you go outside the book of Job, you see this throughout the rest of the Bible. Think of Romans chapter 1. One of the ways that God shows His judgment toward the wicked is He gives them over to their wickedness. Those who are immoral, God hands them over to their immorality. But not so with His children. Not so with the righteous. He, he brings, He allows suffering into their lives. Why? Not for evil, but for the good purpose of further sanctifying them, for further making them like His Son, Jesus Christ. Think about the Apostle Paul. Here's a man 
I, I assume all of us would say, we wish we lived as righteously as the Apostle Paul. Surely Paul would be someone who doesn't need suffering in his life, but listen to what Paul says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you'll remember this because we just went through 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were, listen to a suffering. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul didn't want to keep on living. He thought he was going to die as suffering was so intense. Why? Well, I'll continue. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Why? Paul answers in 2 Corinthians 1.9. But that, that affliction that I thought was going to kill me, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see, one of the reasons why God used this suffering in Paul's life was because God was driving out just the smallest bit of self-reliance that was there. And God wanted to take Paul and make him more and more and more like Jesus Christ. And what I'm telling you is that God doesn't love you or me any less than he does the Apostle Paul. And so one of the reasons why he will bring affliction into our lives so that we might feel that we are bound with chains or that we're caught in the cords of affliction is because he wants to open our ears and remove even the smallest of sinful tendencies in our lives. Are we in need of seeing that we need to rely on God even more? He'll use suffering for that purpose. He does not treat the wicked that way, but he treats his children that way because as Hebrews 12 reminds us, he loves us as sons. This is what Elihu is pointing out to Job. Job, this entire time, you've been railing against God because you're declaring that though you're righteous, God is treating you as his enemy. Elihu says this, Job, you're righteous, and therefore God is treating you as his son. And those whom he treats as sons, he disciplines. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm going to tell you this morning that I know all the reasons why we suffer. But I can tell you this. One thing that God always does through the suffering of his children is he sanctifies us for our good. He opens our ears to instruction. So this isn't Elihu saying, Job, you've sinned and that's why you're suffering. But he is saying, Job, in the midst of your suffering, sin has been exposed. And that is God's purpose. One of his, his weapons is to use suffering in our lives so that we might grow in holiness. Note that everything that Elihu says here points to the goodness of God. When, when he speaks of God uh, bringing affliction to our life or, or speaking to us in a terrifying dream, it's so that he might bring his soul back from the pit. When he catches us in affliction, it's so that we might be lighted with the light of life, that he might open our ears to instruction, that he might deliver the afflicted by their affliction. Everything that Elihu is saying here is that Job, one of the keys you've missed is that God is always good. And God is working good even in Job's life. We can't know all of the reasons why Job suffered as he was. But Elihu's saying, one of the things, Job, I can guarantee you that God is doing is by this suffering, by you being squeezed, something has come to the surface that needed to be dealt with. You declared God unjust, and you dared think that God was silent, and neither are true. And God's correcting both of those because he loves you too much to let you remain in that false mind of thinking. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for you and me. As we go through suffering, one of the reasons why God allows suffering in our lives, lives is because He loves us too much to give us over to our sinful thinking. Over the last year and a half, I've had a, a battle with my health. Unlike I've, I've had such good health my whole life, I've had a, a small battle compared to so many others with health for the last 18 months. And I'll tell you, if we had time, I could name so many things that God has allowed in my life to surface so that I might deal with them through this suffering. I could take the whole afternoon. 
one of them, I'll just know it's very clear to me, and it became very clear to me about three months into my struggle, is that I lacked a degree of compassion for others who were facing chronic struggles that I needed to have. I've prayed more for you in the congregation who have chronic struggles in the last 18 months than I did in the previous 10 years. I would have loved to not gone through that. I would love to know it's gone now. But I thank God that he loves me enough not to give me over to a callous heart. And I thank God that he loves you that much as well. And if we ever doubt these areas, that God is just, or, or that God does not speak and address us, or, or that God is not good, we need look no further than the cross. For it's in the cross, in the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ, that God shows He is not silent. When we had our greatest need, He sent His Son to live and die and be raised. God is not unjust. In order to forgive us, God is not one who will overlook our sins. So what does he do instead? He makes a way for us to be forgiven justly. He sends his son to bear our punishment, to die on the cross in our place for our sins, bearing the wrath of God that we deserved. And then he raises him from the dead. And if you doubt God's goodness, if we repent of our sins and place our faith in him, we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We are made children of God. If you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to repent and come to this good God. Trust in Him and then make your faith known by being baptized. There's nothing magical you have to say. There's no prayer you have to pray or ritual you have to go through. If you simply right now want to place your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope, you can be forgiven of your sins and have life. If you'd like to talk to me or someone else of the service, we'd love to talk to you. If you are a believer this morning, we're going to use the last bit of our time here to come to the table and declare that we are hoping in Christ for our salvation. We're declaring that we know that God is good, that He has spoken, and that He is just. We're going to take a moment of silence to let the ushers and the music, pastors and musicians to get in place this morning, and then we're going to come forward. As you come forward, we're just going to go row by row, the first row followed by the second row. You'll come, there'll be two cups. You'll take one stack of two cups the juice and the bread, return to your seats to the inside, we'll eat together, and then we'll drink together. If you're in the section to my left, there'll be a pastor over here. So let's take a moment of silence, and then we'll come to the table this morning.